Good morning. My name is Russell Brown, and I serve on the Elder Council here at FBC. The scripture reading this morning is found in Luke 14, sorry, Luke 4, 14 through 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has set me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. You may be seated. Good morning. How you guys doing this morning? Man, that was amazing. Singing together, praying together. And um, if you have the time or the opportunity on March 11th, you write this down, March 11th at 1 p.m. at Table Rock Community Church off of Highway 99 there towards Central Point. Uh, we're going to be uh, spending some time listening to Ukrainian missionary and also a time of prayer. And this was already set before Russia invaded. And it's just timely, isn't it? That we would have a representative from Ukraine to share with us other stories. So if that's an interest to you, you have time to do that. It's 1 o'clock, March 11th at Table Rock Community Church. Well, have you tried to do something impossible on your own, but have someone rescue you to make it possible? There are many events in my life I thought I could try this, fill in the blanks, on my own. But it was out of reach sometimes. Sometimes I'd get into a situation where I'm like, now I'm stuck. How do I get out of this? Watch a YouTube video, whatever it takes. But they made it possible by those who believe in me. And through their generosity, made it possible to do what I could not do on my own. 
One such event was learning how to uh, be a river guide on uh, youth ministry trips. I don't know if you guys know some of the history here at FBC, but uh, back in the day as a young person, student ministry and child through youth group through college, uh, there was a program called Summer Servant Ministry, and that's where we had a lot of on-hands learning experiences as well as to understand how ministry works. And so this paddle right here this morning represents uh, rafting. Uh, This would be a paddle that uh, the rest of the team in the raft would uh, have, but a river guide would have a longer paddle to be able to reach in the back and be able to give direction to, to the raft. And this paddle I brought up here this morning is an imagery of some pastors in the past that have made it possible for me to do such a task, is to be able to be a river guide for these trips when I was part of the summer servant ministry here. A couple of names like uh, Rick Burns, uh, is that familiar to you? Uh, Flo Hiltz, Mike Friend, and uh, these guys were crazy to think that they can take young people. I think about uh, uh, all the times I've done student ministry and worked with students myself. Um, What were they thinking back then? To put us in situations where it was impossible to do on our own. That's exactly it. It's to be able to mentor us and train us and do things that we can never imagine that we could ever do and develop the skills of learning about God's community and his ministry. You see, they were about God's kingdom mission in mentoring and raising up young people for the good news of Jesus Christ to share to kids and to students. So back to the paddle, and the training I was receiving, it was uh, time to learn how to be a, a river raft guide uh, for all the summer trips that were coming up, and um, I love the river. I don't know about you, but the river is amazing, and there are tons of analogies that can come out of the imagery of the river. The river, in a sense, is just a beautiful design of God's creation and how it all works. The, the power of the river, I'll never forget Uh, uh, the instruction is the river is powerful. You need to respect it. Anytime you fall out of the raft and and start heading down the river, you want to get your feet pointed forward so that you can bounce off the rocks with your feet instead of bouncing off with your head. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? But how strong the river is and tossing you, churning, and and sometimes going under and wondering if you're going to come back up. And it was a wonderful experience. I love the river and I love rafting. I long for the opportunity that time to have my own raft, and eventually I did. And uh, the first time out on the Klamath River, I had a team. Um, we we're going into a Class 5, and we got word that before we hit that Class 5 rapid, be careful, there is a dredger that got loose, and it's stuck at the bottom of the fall there. And these dredgers are made out of sheet metal, very sharp all the way around. You don't want to hit one with the raft because you have consequences. So I told my team, I said, we got to work really hard. We got this. We can do this. Once we drop into the middle, I need to have the right side go back, right side back, left side forward, hard. Let's go. We got this. And we go right into the rapid. And everybody in the raft freaked out. Ah! Paddles are coming out, you know, it's like, well, that's not going to help. And now we're drifting into the dredger. And the front cell of that raft, 
That was embarrassing. My first time out, I thought for sure we were going to survive the river. So we had to pull out, leave the raft behind, and spread the team out on all these other rafts. Oh, the memories. It was so much fun. Well, they made it possible by believing in me. They made it possible by taking the time to show me. They made it possible because they were intentional in modeling how to guide. So when we would go out on scouting trips and we would learn, um, we would learn to be the ones that were with the paddle and then the one who was guiding. And we all took turns so we could all experience every aspect of how the raft works even to the point of getting out over some slow frog water, the terminology for slow water. Maybe it's slow enough for frogs to go across. I don't know. But frog water, slow water. And we would have raft challenges where we would all try to stand up at the same time and stand at the edge of the raft together and see how long we can stand without falling. They were amazing. They pressed upon me, encouraged me, and therefore I wanted to be like-minded. I was able to guide. I was able to be part of those rafting trips. They were all in. It made it possible for me to develop competence and confidence to guide on my own in return. It gave up that self-rescue. I got this. I got this. The best part about this illustration, their actions remind me of another person who made it possible to do the impossible. The impossibility for me to change my guilty circumstances with God. We just sang about it this morning, that Jesus, Jesus Christ is that person. He makes it possible. He makes it possible. He humbled himself and became a man and was obedient to death on the cross. Because of Jesus Christ's rescue mission through his life, death, burial, resurrection, He made it possible for me to be changed. What kind of change? Change from rescuing myself. I got this. That kind of change. Example, living, I got this in regards to spirituality, life, and relationship with others. Can you relate? Have you found yourself there? I got this. My question is, how is it going for you? Well, honestly, it probably goes pretty well for a little while. In fact, there's moments where it's like, this is paying off. Without Jesus, I looked at my changes. And without Jesus, I took my chances with this rebellious life before I came to know Jesus. As a young person growing up in a church-going family, yep, that was right here. Born and raised here in Mifford, Oregon, many times in this space right here. I tried reaching out to God because there were some circumstances I was in that I needed him to rescue me from, that he needed to change, that he needed to move me out of. And I tried reaching out to God for him to change my circumstances, but there was no change, no answer. Nothing, nothing was changing. I was still in the same circumstances. So the best option was to rescue myself by being rebellious against this church-going family. Oh, man. And I was good at it. 
Should I give you some ideas? I think my mom's listening over here. So um, she'll remember one time. I made it so hard for my family to go to church. So hard. Back when we had those big cars, you remember those big Chevy, four-door Chevys made out of steel? And no, uh, no seats to lock us in. I remember going through the car, going out the other door, running back into the apartment. <laughs> made it so hard for them to go. Trying to get them to give up. My rebellion in anything related to Jesus Christ or the church through my grade school years it's, was pathetic. Now, keep in mind, I, I hated getting in trouble. I didn't want to get in trouble. But my rebellion was so severe that I got this. I can change my circumstances. And the number one big circumstance that I was in all the way through grade school was I was a poor kid in a rich school. And you can only imagine what happens to poor kids going to a school where boys and girls had everything, had the latest styles. I had the best that what Goodwill had to offer. And isn't it ironic that today that's a good style? <laughs> Man, I grew up in the wrong time. But they constantly reminded me of who I was in their eyes. But later on in junior high, through a selfish plan of my own, I was trying to find a way to get out of homework. And I remember my friend saying, hey, you should come to uh, JV Iwana. Um, my mom allows me to go, and I don't have to do any homework if I go. That sounds amazing. Let's do it. I asked my mom, and she said, yeah, you can go. And I went. And that night, God pressed into my rebellious, self-rescuing heart. The small group leader talks about Jesus Christ's rally on the cross. This was a time in my life when self-rescuing was not changing my circumstances. Isn't that interesting? Here, I got it. I can do it. I can change my circumstance. But it still wasn't changing. When the small group leader was sharing Jesus' reality on the cross, I gave in to the fact that Jesus had the power to change his circumstance, but he chose not to. People mocking him. He was whipped. He was beaten. And all he had to do is wink, and then everybody would be vaporized. That's what I wanted. But he didn't. He chose to take my place and take my rebellious soul and make me alive before God and change my circumstance before God. So I believed. As a junior higher, now they say middle school, I believe and repented of this rebellious, self-rescuing soul. Jesus changed my guilty circumstance before God. How about you? Can you identify people in your life that help make it possible to change your self-rescuing reality? How often do you think about Jesus Christ's reality? Do you believe that Jesus Christ can rescue you from the circumstances that you are trying to self-rescue from? Luke answers these questions as he reveals how Jesus Christ can rescue Luke in chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. And if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Let's camp out there. 
Let's just enjoy God's word. God's most beautiful, precious words to us to tug at our soul, to tug at our hearts, to awaken our conscience so that we would see that there is one that can rescue that is greater than us. But first, I'm going to set the narrative up for you. The setting, we go into Galilee. And really quickly, I just love this area. I had the opportunity in 1997 to go to Israel with the church that was part of there at Bethel Baptist Community Church in McMinnville. And that in itself was a miracle that I could even go on this trip because I was just getting out of college and I didn't have any money. It was by the great generosity of the church that uh, there was a basement apartment that was available that I was able to stay at, poor, doing student ministry, and that's all I had. But somebody came up and said, hey, I, I heard you're interested in going to Israel. I said, yeah, I mean, that'd be fantastic. What a, what a great experience to be able to end at Multnomah and, and be able to go and, and walk around the places that you've studied uh, there at Multnomah. And one of the pastors came up to me and said, hey, just to let you know, we had somebody on the trip that can't go, but would like to sponsor somebody that would like to go. Are you asking me? <laughs> I said, yes, I would love to go. This would be fantastic because I was just starting a a pop can drive. (laughs) And the reality of it was like, I don't think it's going to work. I had to come up with, you know, almost (laughs) $3,000. Pop cans, how silly of me. So I went and had a wonderful time and we were up in the Galilee area. Galilee is a word for... Uh, encircled. It's encircled around the, uh, uh, the Sea of Galilee there, and, and it's a beautiful place. In fact, when we were in Tiberias, that was, that's it. If I ever live in Israel, this is where I would love to live. A beautiful, even 75 degrees on the Sea of Galilee uh, at the southern uh, west end. As you look out east, you can see the beautiful sunrise coming over and uh, you can see the Sea of Galilee, and the food is amazing, the people are amazing, it's a great place to be. And then during the time of Jesus Christ, uh, Galilee was uh, a, a really populated area. Um, I think sometimes we always had this idea that it has farmers, yes it had farmers, and uh, yes it has fishermen, but it was also a very progressive, forward-thinking area. It was a trade area. It had a collection. It was like a hub of everything of the countries to the north and all the countries to to the south. And this is the area that Jesus grew up in. And this is the area where we see a lot of Jesus Christ begins his ministry and he goes to. But I want to highlight specifically where he was going to first, outside of interacting with people. We find Jesus led by the Spirit to teach in synagogues. While they're teaching, he became quite the celebrity, as we see there in verse 15. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he was accepted by all because everyone in the synagogues were like, wow, this guy can teach. This guy knows his stuff. He is amazing. And at this moment, Jesus had held back from creating any kind of tension 
or communicating what his mission is all about because we'll see later what happens with that. But I want to talk about the synagogue for a minute. I want to talk about the environment that the synagogue created. Here's some interesting information that you need to know because it's going to help us to understand the tension that arises as we go through the scripture this morning. What are synagogues? Without going into great detail because of time, I will sum up what Jesus was facing in the synagogues during his time. It was custom assembly of Jewish people that dated back during the dispersion of the Jews. The worship gathering included these things, confession of faith, uh, the reading of the Shema, reading of the Mosaic Law, interpretations, addressing blessings, and administrating justice. All those things are great in the synagogue. There is nothing wrong with God's people getting together to gather. But this is where it goes sideways. This is where it goes wrong. This is where it becomes abused and destructive. During their administrative of justice, offenders against the Mosaic law and the Jewish religion customs were excommunicated or scourged. What? I thought these were great people. Aren't these people of God? I mean, man, they're getting together, they pray, they worship, they read God's word. But they kill people? They scourge people if they don't line up with the Mosaic law and their ideas? You see, the synagogue system is based on Judaism and the law that was only for the Jewish people. Elders of the synagogue despise all non-Jews people groups and let alone the disenfranchised. I have to share this with you because that's where the intensity goes when Jesus Christ reveals who he really is. To the point that there is this flesh that arises There is a power at place in some of the synagogues where Jesus went to. So you can see this religious club was passionate and zealous to tame the flesh with self-righteousness. Why not? You ever been zealous about something? You read about all the information, you get really excited about the information, and now you press it upon your listeners to the point where nobody can dialogue. And there's nothing wrong with being zealous about something. But if it pertains to self-righteousness, I'm out. It's dangerous ground. To practice removing guilt and shame from sin through self-rescuing, to be saved and be God's people, it's important for us to know that this environment was not God's kingdom purpose. It's also important to know that cruel things that they did in the name of God. And it just makes me sad to think about how many were taken advantage of. And it's just a regular pattern. And listen, and I know where it comes from. It's Satan himself. He loves to use self-righteousness as a way to get his way. And if he can do it through broken hearts, if he can do it through religious activities, what a mess. What a mess. 
Now, as we continue in the text, we read in verse 16 and 17, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogues on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. <laughs> this is awesome. Now you can just see how the Holy Spirit works in this place. You can just see what's happening in this place. You can see the work that's happening. We stop at this moment for what Jesus shares next is his rescue mission sent from God, led by the Spirit and lived out through Jesus Christ's life. We find that three ways, three ways in which Jesus Christ can rescue us so that it's impossible, sorry, so that it's possible to turn from our self-rescue efforts and become more like him. That's kind of the main idea of the text that we're getting to that Luke is trying to reveal that there are three ways in which Jesus Christ can rescue us so that it's possible to turn from our self-rescued efforts and become more like him. I'm going to have the, uh, the passage come up there that we've read through uh, verses 18 and 19, but it's also Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. So Brian, you can go ahead and put that up there, and uh, you'll see the, uh, the first part. We're going to be camping out here for just a bit. The first reason in which Jesus Christ can rescue us. Jesus can rescue because he is chosen. What I love about Isaiah is that way before Jesus Christ even came onto the scene as a man, this was already in place. Isaiah was writing God's ordained work and God's perfect plan to rescue people through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the imperfect, imperfect harmony with God and the Holy Spirit. Jesus from the beginning to the end was led by the Spirit. And this is how he was led. Holy Spirit was upon Jesus. The Holy Spirit seeks to glorify Jesus by revelation, illumination, application of the truth of who Jesus is, the Son of God. And we saw that earlier on with the baptism, the dove coming down, God speaking, saying, this is my Son. The other part is that Jesus is anointed. The Holy Spirit anointing was choosing Jesus as a prophet to preach the good news. Jesus is set apart, empowered for the gospel ministry. He is the only one anointed as Savior. He is appointed to bring good news of salvation for all. So we know that Jesus Christ is the rightful king, but specifically in this anointing that's taken place, because we see in Old Testament where uh, prophets were anointed. They went through a whole uh, process of doing that with oil and anointing. But we know that Jesus Christ is specifically anointed as a prophet at this point. A prophet simply bears good news of God. They're just the messenger. They're just the proclaimer. They're, they are the ones that tell of God's purpose, and that is who Jesus Christ is becoming. And can't you see how this is developing that Jesus Christ as a man, as 100% man at this moment, is living it out. He's in complete harmony with God, in complete harmony with the Holy Spirit, and he is complete human. He's going for it. He's going to share and preach and proclaim good news. And he is sent, Jesus is sent by the Holy Spirit 
The Holy Spirit assists and carries out the miracles of Jesus and the purpose of God's work. And really quickly, uh, what I love about the Holy Spirit, if you do a deep dive into it, just really quickly, here, here are some things that come about when the Holy Spirit's working in your life. This is what I love about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit intercedes for you. Isn't that beautiful? The Holy Spirit's not passive. The Holy Spirit is um, not just some kind of force. The Holy Spirit's an actual person. In reality, praying, interceding. Uh, For us, the Holy Spirit has given us the mind and again illuminating and revealing who Jesus Christ is. We can also see that this is the Trinity at work relationally. We have God is the Father, we have God is Jesus, and we have God is the Holy Spirit. My question for you this morning is, do you depend upon the Holy Spirit? How does a person live by the Holy Spirit today? That's a good question. How does the Holy Spirit work today in this reality? Well, we see how the Holy Spirit worked in Old Testament, the New Testament, during the life of Jesus, during the life, the beginning of the church. But what about us? How does the Holy Spirit work in us? Is it a voice? Is it tongues of fire? Is it mystical dust? (laughs) You guys have probably heard some of these things. Pretty amazing what's out there. A couple of illustrations, one illustration of my life I want to share with you how the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit works in my life by awakening my conscience to how dumb I really am. Man, that took a lot to say <laughs> publicly. I am so stupid. And... Uh, you know people are praying for you. You know, because you'd be going through your stupid stuff, going through your self-rescuing stuff, and all of a sudden, man, I'm not hungry for that right now. There's like a, a shift in the appetite or a, a conviction or a realization of what I'm really doing. I love how the Holy Spirit illuminates in front of me that I'm ruining this relationship. That's just an example. And I love it when people bring things to my attention, speak into those blind spots that I have. I'm being transparent here because we have blind spots. And I love it when people speak into that. But then that selfishness comes in and goes, no, I'm not like that. Then all of a sudden it's being revealed, oh, I am like that. (laughs) And you just feel the sense of sickness inside. To the point of you just feel nauseous and you mourn. And that's how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. The Holy Spirit is constantly at work, praying interceding and being the power to help us see Jesus Christ. The second reason in which Jesus can rescue, Jesus can rescue because he is the Messiah. Verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 21, today the scripture has been fulfilled 
in your hearing. These are profound claims that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. There's going to be saving work at place. Jesus is the rightful king of Israel as Messiah. Jesus as Messiah is this. Great king, humble, rejected, accomplished, full of obedience, perfect, perfect in which Adam could not do or what Israel could not do. That is Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus, as a prophet, has good news for all people in regards to spiritual poverty specifically. Only the message of Jesus Christ can save because it has been approved and purposed by God. Jesus is not claiming his own message here. Let's be clear of that. Jesus is not going out on a limb, coming up with something different than what God has in store. In fact, he stays to the text. The Spirit of God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And we're going to camp out here for a minute in regards to the war, to the word poor. I'm going to update that to spiritual poverty. It's really easy for us to look at this and go, oh, this must be just for the poor people. But if you do a deep dive in this, you'll recognize that it's not just about physical or financial, or situational in the sense of poverty. We're getting to the point of spiritual poverty. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, and your Bibles turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3. What is spiritual poverty? And you're dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all at once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see the word poor there in verse 18 of Luke 4. In this context, does not mean financially or material poor, but it means people who can't find self-rescue from themselves by being in the nature of wrath. When we were born, we were born into this. This is the result of the curse going all the way back to the beginning in the Garden of Eden. Because of the decisions that Eve and Adam made together, they were separated from God. And because of that state, we are separated from God. That is spiritual poverty to the most. With that separation, with that poverty, that is heavier and and. and uh, greater than any material poverty that we see? Because it totally makes sense. Here in the western part of the world, United States of America, our poverty, in a sense, is different than the rest of the world. It doesn't take much for us to know that, especially when you're starting to see images coming in from Ukraine. I'm sure some of you guys are like, oh, wow, look at their fashion. Look at what they're wearing. Look what they're not 
what they don't have and what they do have. It doesn't take long to see that poverty in our human understanding is different to the rest of the world. Even what we consider poor here is still better off than some of those places around the world. But that's not what we're getting to here with the word poor. What Jesus Christ is coming to do is to rescue us from spiritual poverty. We lack. We are poor. We are in a circumstance where we are separated from God, and the only way to come back to God is what Jesus Christ is pointing out here out of Isaiah. By nature, children of wrath, our dependence on a perfect rescue is Jesus. Our dependence upon a perfect rescue is Jesus. Some examples of the symptoms of spiritual poverty. We know that this is here. One of the things I often have conversation with when I was doing student ministry is trying to help students get to a place where they would recognize that they need Jesus. Is that there are a lot of things that they were born with and they naturally do without thinking about it. I would say, well, remember when you were a child? You had such a strong need to just jump off the couch and find out what would happen? Or that the burner is on and you just wanted to see what would happen? On and on it goes. The things that we wanted to do, to just see and experience and see how that would come to play. That was all natural. Nobody taught the person to jump off the couch. Nobody taught us to touch touch something hot. It's just within us. We have a nature within us that um, is harmful and, and, and destructive. And that's what we're seeing here. Here are examples of what happens with spiritual poverty. Then we get the physical and financial poverty because of it. Here's another example out of Matthew 19, 23 through 24. Jesus describes to the rich, they can't enter the kingdom of God with their riches, not because they are rich, but they don't recognize their spiritual poverty. When I was over there in Israel, um, the, uh, the tour guy was saying that, hey, when you look at the, uh, the gate entry here, the door, you'll notice you have the, uh, the main door, but right above it, in the, the part that is rounded, you have two other little doors. There's a name for that. It's the eye of the needle. Oh, I remember growing up, you're thinking, well, yeah, it is impossible for people to go through the eye of the needle, you know? But still even impossible. The body could probably go through the eye of the needle, but it's impossible for a rich person to take everything through the eye of the needle. All makes sense now. Not because of the richness, but they didn't recognize their spiritual poverty. Same for the physical and financially disenfranchised people. All social statuses. People need to recognize that Jesus is the one who can rescue from spiritual poverty. We all have it. We are all in the circumstance. It doesn't matter how much money you have to try to get out of it. There's a going with this. You're in a circumstance. You're in a a situation. Um, You can roll the dice and take the chance and, 
and hopefully get out of it. Congratulations. We've all kind of probably have done that and tried that. You know what's really, really interesting about that? It actually works for a while. That's the bummer part. It actually, I mean, it's amazing what we can accomplish with our own. I'm not minimizing that at all, but that's what gets us in trouble because we do get to this period. I'm like, it's working. Or you can call upon some type of spiritual something. Believe it or not, if you haven't noticed, but there are actual deities. There is a spiritual battle that's taking place. There is a spiritual world that is at work to destroy and destruct your way of life. There are actual deities outside of God that are destructive. And they lie to you. They make promises to you. And you give agreements to them, and you just give it a try and just see how far it will go. It it happens. Those things are demonic. You see demonic activity around all the time. Or you can just simply um, go with some kind of self-help method. Prosperity gospel method. (laughs) Ouch. Health and wealth and read this, and then this is going to change your life, and you're going to be a better person. Again, maybe for a little while, but how's that going for you? You see, the, this, this is good news. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor means now is the time of salvation. And if you haven't noticed, Jesus left out the last part of that Isaiah verse. He withheld that God is going to come, that Jesus is going to come back again the second time. It's judgment. This is good news because Jesus is coming in as the favor of God. The year of Jubilee to to release spiritual poverty. To be grace and mercy and justice to the poor, disenfranchised, low social class. It's Jesus Christ's great generosity to humans in perfect poverty state so that he can help us in our spiritual poverty state. Uh, Turn with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. This is really important for us to understand that he did this as a human being, that Luke is trying to uh, reveal Jesus Christ's humanity. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest of God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. This is good news that Jesus Christ can rescue us because he is merciful and faithful high priest of God. My question for you is, do you recognize your spiritual poverty? Who is doing the rescuing? Going back to my story, I was sharing with you of my personal life as an illustration. I recognized my spiritual poverty moment. Not only was I physically poor, in, in the sense to being in the United States, I was only poor because other people were telling me I was poor. But I also recognized that I didn't have Jesus. And Jesus is still rescuing me today. 
And the third reason in which Jesus Christ can rescue, Jesus can rescue because he is the perfect human. So as the rest of the story unfolds and with the time that we have left, we see Jesus now going to the synagogue there in, in, in Nazareth, and he shares with them that he is the Messiah. And as this unfolds, I'm going to go through this really quickly. You can only imagine back to the synagogue, religious club people, Jesus comes in and says, I'm the Messiah. And they're just like, what? You're Joseph's son. What? You're one of us. There's no way. You're, what? Okay, prove it. As we see there in the text, prove it. And then Jesus, knowing their hearts and knowing who they are because he's family, but he's Jesus too. He knows their heart, and he doesn't play their game, and he dives right into the proverb and gets right to the point that you're not so sure of yourself, Israel. Don't be so sure of yourself that you are God's only chosen people. In fact, here are some stories of Old Testament stories of favor to the Gentiles. Offense took off. There is no way. Jesus, you are good news to the Gentiles too. Can you see the reason why I've set up the synagogue people before you? You couldn't handle that. Because they were the religious club that were so focused on self-righteousness through the effort. Salvation comes through the Mosaic laws and practices of the law and through our human stupid religion. And Jesus comes in and drops the bomb on them and says, I am he, I am the Messiah, and this is for all people. As the story unfolds, a mob mentality started to take an offense. We have to be careful with offense. Be careful with offense. It will make you do crazy things. You know that. You ever get in the middle of an offense and your flesh is raging, you're just overwhelmed and, and you're not thinking right? You're doing crazy things and you get to the end of it, you're like, oh, wow, that was a mistake. To the point where they took Jesus out to the cliff and being there, seeing some of these bluffs and cliffs and everything, probably comparable to Table Rock, that's, that's high enough to uh, not survive. And they take Jesus out to the cliff because this is insane. There is no way that God is favoring all people. A quote from a New Testament commentary from Holman. There was no miracle, no angels called down from heaven. Jesus walked right through the crowd. His person was enough to quiet them. Rejection at home did not call forth desperate measures from him to win back the crowd. Look at the mob. How foolish they must feel. No victim. Rejection is not the end of Jesus Christ's ministry. Luke has more to offer in regards to God's kingdom good news mission as we continue through the book of Luke. 
My question is for you, how about you? Does the humanity of Jesus Christ quiet your rejection of him? Does the quiet humanity of Jesus Christ quiet down the rejection of him? As we close this morning, there are three ways in which Jesus Christ can rescue us so that it's possible for us to turn from our self-rescuing efforts and become more like him. Jesus can rescue because he is chosen. Jesus can rescue because he is the Messiah. Jesus can rescue because he is the perfect human. What circumstances are you facing today? Is your circumstances greater than spiritual poverty? Not likely. Nope doesn't compare. Who is coming to rescue you from spiritual poverty? Yourself? Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me all who are labor and heavy and laden, full of the self-rescuing, and I will give you rest. Yeah, he'll give you rest. He's got it. You don't have it. He's got it. There is not a circumstance that you face today that is greater than the spiritual poverty. Are you ready to welcome Jesus to be rescued, non-believer? There might be some in here in this room that have never fully given in to that experience that I did when I was in middle school, junior high. A belief and a repentance to that Jesus can't rescue Are you ready for Jesus to rescue you from the burden of godless life? How about Christians? We're not off the hook here. As Jesus continues to rescue you from your spiritual poverty because you still have residue of spiritual poverty. It's just human nature. We tend to go back to these things. I don't know why, but we just do. One of the reasons is because we're fully not believing that Jesus is rescuing and we just go back to, I got it. It doesn't take long for us then to go, I don't, I, don't, I don't have it. Are you still trying to rescue yourself? Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we give you praise. Jesus, you're a chosen. You're the Messiah. And through your humanity, Father, we can relate. We can relate in love and be merciful to others as well. I pray for everyone in this room that they would trust in your rescue, rest in your rescue, and tell others about your rescue. In Jesus' name, amen.